from New York, this is Democracy Now! Another thing is we, we can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can't tanks moving within the hospital. We can't hear continuous shooting. Uh, now, uh, again, it's totally scary situation. The Israeli military's raiding Al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza, where thousands of Palestinians have sought refuge or medical treatment. Tanks are inside the complex where Israel is holding Palestinian men naked and blindfolded. We'll get the latest. We'll also look at Tuesday's March for Israel in Washington, where leading Democratic and Republican lawmakers shared the stage with the radical Christian Zionist pastor John Hagee, who once said God had, quote, sent Hitler to help Jews reach the promised land. Israel is the shining city on the hill. Israel says, God says of Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. Plus, we speak to the journalist Peter Beinert of Jewish Currents and Rabbi Alyssa Wise, part of the newly formed Rabbis for Ceasefire. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli ground forces have raided Gaza's largest medical facility, Al-Shifa Hospital, where hundreds of patients are still being treated and thousands have taken shelter. The IDF has been interrogating displaced people and staff. Medical workers were forced to move premature babies and other patients as the hospital was turned into a war zone, sending dangerous dust and debris into the air. It is a direct targeting of the specialties building. Patients are being evacuated who were evacuated in the first place from the intensive care to the hallways. On Tuesday, people trapped by Israeli forces in Al-Shifa Hospital dug a mass grave within the hospital compound to bury the dead. Israel's assault on Gaza's collapsed health infrastructure has also targeted Al-Rantisi Children's Hospital, which, like almost all hospitals in Gaza, was forced to shutter and evacuate all patients. The hospital was besieged by tanks and water. Power and oxygen were cut, and there were various targeting of the hospital, so we were forced to evacuate the hospital, from patients to medical staff, as well as the displaced families that came for protection to reside in the hospital's vicinity and buildings. A lot of patients were carried by their families. The ambulances couldn't reach the hospital. Their relatives carried them and moved out. Other patients were carried by the medical staff. Unfortunately, there were three patients in the intensive care unit who were placed on the only working devices but without oxygen supply. They were left in the ICU. RNTC Hospital houses the only pediatric cancer ward. Over 11,300 Palestinians have been killed by Israel since October 7th. The true death toll is likely much higher. Children make up the largest percentage of victims. At least 1.7 million of Gaza's 2.3 million inhabitants have been displaced, many of them now facing heavy rains as fear mounts that flooding could overwhelm the sewage system. This is a displaced Palestinian. 
Winter is a nightmare. The situation we're facing right now will be a nightmare. In the past, I used to wish for winter to arrive and for the rain to fall, for the trees to start to bloom and grow so that we can harvest, when everything looks very beautiful. But right now, I pray every day for it not to rain. We are living in tents, nothing that protects us. When the rain falls, we will drown. Well, the rain brought misery to now homeless Gazans. Some also welcomed the downpours for finally providing drinkable water. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed at least eight Palestinians Tuesday, seven of them during a 15-hour military raid in the northern city of Tulkarm. The Tabat Tabat Hospital was attacked with a barrage of tear gas canisters that covered the facility with thick haze. Since October 7th, nearly 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli soldiers and settlers in the West Bank. Israel's military Tuesday confirmed the death of a soldier taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. Hamas released video of the captive 19-year-old Noah Marciano before her death, as well as a photo of her apparently after she was killed, which Hamas blamed on an Israeli airstrike last week. Meanwhile, the families of other Israeli hostages kicked off a five-day march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to demand Prime Minister Netanyahu do more to secure their release. Belize has become the latest nation to suspend diplomatic relations with Israel over its war on Gaza. Meanwhile, the deputy permanent observer for Palestine to the U.N. responded to recent comments by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said Israel is a democracy that respects international law and human rights. Majid Bamya wrote on social media, quote, I am now convinced there's another international law that we don't know about and that the German chancellor and others are referring to, one that allows colonization, collective punishment, indiscriminate attacks, wanton destruction, racial discrimination, as long as your name is Israel, he said. Here in the U.S., over 500 political appointees and employees across 40 government agencies sent a letter to President Biden Tuesday to protest his support of Israel's war on Gaza. In Washington, D.C., tens of thousands converged on the National Mall for the March for Israel Tuesday, while some rally-goers condemned the rise of anti-Semitism and called for the release of Israeli hostages. Others brandished signs calling for Israel to keep bombing Gaza. Among the high-profile speakers at Tuesday's protest were Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Christian fundamentalist House Speaker Mike Johnson. As Prime Minister Netanyahu says so well, this is a fight between good and evil, between light and darkness, between civilization and barbarism. CNN political contributor Van Jones took to the stage and called for ending all the horror while branding himself a peace guy, prompting the crowd to start chanting, no ceasefire. Another speaker at yesterday's rally was far-right pastor John Hagee, a known anti-Semite who once said Hitler was sent by God to exterminate Jewish people. Yemen's Houthi rebels have launched a series of missile and drone attacks against Israel over the last couple of days. The Israeli military said Tuesday it had intercepted a missile near the Red Sea. Meanwhile, in Syria, at least 66 people, including children, were killed and hundreds of others wounded in the last month as Syrian government forces and Russian allies have intensified their bombardments in Idlib and Aleppo. 
The U.S. House of Representatives passed a short-term funding bill to keep the government open until early 2024, sending the measure to the Senate ahead of Friday's midnight deadline. The bill was approved Tuesday, 336 to 95, with nearly two-thirds of the votes coming from Democrats. The bill does not include spending cuts or policy changes, as demanded by the House Freedom Caucus. New House Speaker Mike Johnson instead appealed to more moderate Republicans and the majority of Democrats. The bill also does not include military funds for Israel and Ukraine. President Biden announced a $6 billion plan as part of the Inflation Reduction Act to reinforce the country's climate resilience, including upgrading water infrastructure measures to mitigate flood risks and modernizing the electric grid. The announcement came as the government released its National Climate Assessment Tuesday. This assessment shows us in clear scientific terms that climate change is impacting all regions, all sectors of the United States, not just some, all. It shows that communities across America are taking more action than ever to reduce climate risk. It warns that more action is still badly needed. In related news, the United Nations released its latest report on climate plans of countries around the world. The U.N. concludes nations are recklessly off track to meet global climate goals, and that even if countries successfully achieve all their current climate pledges, emissions would still rise 9 percent above 2010 levels. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned, quote, the world is failing to get a grip on the climate crisis. National plans are strikingly misaligned with the science. COP28 must be the place to urgently close the climate ambition gap, he said. Democracy Now! will be covering the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in December. Human rights groups and Democratic Congress members called for passage of the End Solitary Confinement Act during a virtual rally Tuesday. The federal legislation introduced by Congressmember Cory Bush would prohibit the use of solitary confinement for more than four hours and create safe alternatives. Congressmember Adriano Espaillat said, quote, solitary is a form of torture and causes long-lasting irreparable harm to confined individuals, the majority of whom are black and brown. Senator Bernie Sanders held a hearing Tuesday to call for the strengthening of union protections amidst a wave of labor victories and persistent inequality in the United States. Sanders urged Congress to pass the PRO Act, which he introduced earlier this year. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain, fresh off his union's successful strike against the big three automakers, called on Congress to step up for the working class. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, testified on the importance of a wage for all airline and airport workers. You have workers who can't make a living wage and are actually sleeping in the gate areas because they are working around the clock, shifts around the clock, and sometimes different jobs at that airport. That makes all of us less safe. They also cannot live near those airports because they are usually in major metropolitan areas and they're having to take transportation sometimes three hours back and forth, so they don't even have time to go home between those shifts. So we've got to raise the standard for all of the workers. It's about safety, it's about security, and it's about basic dignity at work. But Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullins delivered the hearing's most stunning moment when he revived an ongoing feud with Teamsters President Sean O'Brien, challenging him to a physical fight. This is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Big no, hold, stop it. Is that your right. solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. Look at you. You know, you're a United States senator. 
After ordering Senator Mullins to sit down, Senator Sandy's, uh, Sanders added, quote, God knows the American people have enough contempt for Congress. Let's not make it worse. And in San Francisco, President Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of APEC—that's the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit—it's Xi's first visit to the United States in six years. Ahead of the meeting, Biden told reporters he hopes to reduce heightened tensions between the two countries. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. As the APEC summit got underway this week, an array of protests took over San Francisco's streets, ranging from the war on Gaza, the climate crisis, and the treatment of the Uyghur community in China. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin the show in Gaza, where Israel's conducting a military raid on al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza, where thousands of Palestinians have sought refuge or medical treatment. The Palestinian Authority has decried the raid as a violation of international law. There are reports Israeli troops have ordered all young men on the hospital grounds to surrender. Many Palestinian men are already being interrogated, some while being held naked and blindfolded. Israel's accused Hamas of placing a command center below al-Shifa, but Hamas and hospital officials have denied the claim. Israeli tanks are now inside the hospital complex. This is Dr. Ahmed al-Mokalati, a plastic surgeon at al-Shifa. The other thing is we, we can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can't hear tanks moving within the hospital. We can't hear continuous shooting that now. Uh, but again, it's totally a scary situation. So what are these sounds, doctor? I'm hearing sounds. It's continuous shooting from the tanks. We don't know what to do. We are within the building. Each one within the building they are in. We can't move between the hospital buildings at all, for sure. So uh, we are with each other, as with the patients, with the civilians within the hospital. Uh, you know, it's a totally scary situation. Doctors in al-Shifa are struggling to keep patients alive, including dozens of premature babies amidst a lack of fuel and the ongoing Israeli military raid. I'm standing here at the ICU at al-Shifa Medical Complex. The department is suffering after the shutdown of electricity due to the lack of fuel. The health ministry warned about the lack of the fuel. This department today at dawn was struck directly by the Israeli occupation forces. Here also, the ICU and these children, who were on life machines and artificial respiration, were taken into the corridors of the ICU department. These people here were denied life support devices. They face the loss of their lives because there are no support machines or artificial respiration devices. Around 29 patients are facing this tragedy. 
We're joined now by Dr. Mads Gilbert, Norwegian physician who's worked in al-Shifa for years, just spent weeks in Cairo getting, trying his best to get into Gaza. He's a professor at University Hospital of North Norway and the Arctic University of Norway, who's worked with Palestinians since 1981, was in Gaza there during the major Israeli bombardments of 2006, 2009, 2012 and 2014. Dr. Gilbert, um, where are you right now? Right now, I arrived this early morning in Johannesburg in South Africa. I will be on an invited speaking tour here on Gaza and Palestine. We just, the- we just have a few minutes, but I know that you've been speaking to people within Gaza, in Al-Shifa. Can you talk about the scene that we just described? What do you understand is happening there? If I should choose today between hell and Shifa, I would choose hell. Uh, I got a report yesterday from the Minister of Health that 20 out of the 23 ICU patients had died. 17 other patients died because of lack of supplies, oxygen and water. And three, if not five, of the 38 premature newborns have died because of this uh, slow suffocation that Israeli occupation army is uh, exposing all the hospitals to by cutting electricity, uh, oxygen, and medical supplies, and it's it's you know it's uh, beyond description. I'm I'm out of words to describe this systematic man-made slaughtering of patients in civilian hospitals. And um, when I heard uh, the crowd in the United States shout, you know, no no ceasefire, I think that's the only place on earth where people are supporting Israel and. The other streets of the world are supporting a ceasefire, a human solution, a lift of the siege, and a support for the people of Gaza. So this is a deeply divided world, and the lies are flying around like never before in any war. And I think we need to keep our heads and our hearts calm now and understand that what we are seeing is an unprecedented attack on a civilian society occupied by one of the most brutal and ruthless armies in the world, exercising a systematic attack on civilian health care completely against international law and the standards that we want to apply and being backpadded all the time by the U.S. president. I mean, we're in the darkest time of modern history now. So far, if you look at the U.N. numbers, the U.N. numbers that are coming out every day in their fact sheets, 40,000 Palestinians have been killed or are missing under the rubble, or have been injured for four weeks. 40,000, 6,000 of the killed and missing are children. When did that become defense of a country? When did it become decent to drag neonates out of their incubators and kill children? You know, the only explanation for this is a deep-rooted and very frightening racism. Because you don't do these things to people you consider your equal. I'm extremely disturbed. I'm extremely upset. And I blame the European leaders and your president for this bloody bloodshed of people who are being completely defenseless. And I talked to a colleague in Mustafa El-Aqsa in the south yesterday. He told me they were seeing influx of patients coming walking from the north, having followed the Israeli command to leave the north. And they were being shot in the legs and they were treating gunshots in the legs from people trying to escape the north 40% and Dr. Of the- Gilbert 
Dr. Gilbert, I wanted to ask you what what, uh, the Israeli government continues to insist that Hamas is using the hospitals in Gaza uh, as command centers and as uh, underground headquarters of storing weapons and even hostages. What is your uh, response to these claims? Twofold. Why are you in the media conveying these false claims continuously and taking the attention away from what is the real problem, namely the continuous bombing and killing of people in Gaza? There is absolutely no proof so far that I know of, neither from U.S. intelligence nor from the Israeli intelligence. And we've heard these accusations for 16 years. Show us the proof. Show us the evidence. And don't forget that the Geneva Convention, the fourth convention, is telling the the fighting parties to make both distinction and precaution. If it's a mixed military and civilian target, the civilian precaution takes priority over the military gain. And they have been bombing not only Shifa and Al-Quds, but lots of hospitals with even bothering to claim that there is any military uh, activity in that hospital. They bombed the Turkish, they bombed Rantisi Pediatric Hospital, and we all seen these ridiculous videos where they say, oh, here are pampers in a pediatric hospital, it's got to be the terrorists. So I think this is a big sham, and I'm, I'm a bit worried that you in the media are so uh, easily are conveying these unsubstantiated accusations. And regardless... They don't have the right to bomb hospitals. That's very clear. And uh, now it's not only Shifa. Now uh, uh, okay. the Alputs Hospital are, is being evacuated with all the patients and all the staff. And it is really a convoy of shame to the Western world and the United States to see these hospitals, the last resorts in a dramatic assault on the civilian population in Gaza, who have done nothing wrong other than being born Palestinians in Gaza. And this convoy of misery is the result of a lenient attitude to the Israeli violations of international law through many, many years. The Israeli impunity has reached a new level, and we are all sinking into that abyss of disregard for human life and humanity as as we are seeing this going on without anybody trying to stop the Israeli army. Dr. Mads Gilbert, we thank you for being with us. Norwegian physician who spent decades working in Gaza, attempted to get in, to go back to al-Shifa, but wasn't able to. Now speaking to us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Coming up, Peter Beinert, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. That is envious, cold-hearted and devious Greedy, mischievous, global, colonial Bloodthirsty, blind, mindless and cheap Focused on borders and slaughter and sheep Burning our books, bulldozing of homes Given to targeted killing with drones Lethal injections, rest without trial Monocular vision, gangrene and slime, 
Part of Me Died by Roger Waters. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In Israel, family members of some of the 240 hostages being held by Hamas have begun a five-day march from Tel Aviv to Benjamin Netanyahu's home in Jerusalem, where they plan to arrive Saturday. The family members are accusing the prime minister of not doing enough to free their loved ones. On Monday, Hamas offered to release up to 70 women and children hostages in exchange for a five-day ceasefire and the release of 275 Palestinian women and children prisoners being held in Israeli jails. Israel has ignored the offer so far and has rejected all calls for a ceasefire. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of people gathered in Washington, D.C. for a march for Israel, where speakers and rally-goers repeatedly voiced opposition to a ceasefire. To talk more about the overall situation, we're joined by Peter Beinert, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, the City University of New York. He also writes a newsletter on Substack called The Beinert Notebook. Peter, welcome back to Democracy Now! I want to start with um, uh, President Biden saying there's about to be a hostage release. And if you can talk about what this deal you see, you can't possibly know exactly what we're talking about here. But the issue of a trade for these hostages for prisoners and who these prisoners are that Hamas is demanding be released. I don't know the details, but I pray that this is, will happen. Many of the hostage families have been calling for this. Um, I, I can't even imagine the agony of these families uh, not knowing where their relatives are and if they're alive or dead. We in our, in our own family, we have a, a, a na- all the names of the hostages on our on our on our refrigerator door so we see them every day um uh but it, 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 palestinian there there are palestinians who have been in prison often for a long time sometimes in administrative detention without any due process and it seems to me that allowing women and children palestinian women and children who have been held under those conditions as part of a negotiated deal would be a humane gesture on both sides And can you talk about some of the leaders who are imprisoned by Israel right now, like, for example, Marwan Barghouti? Right. So I think one of the problems in Palestinian politics is that there's a whole generation of leaders, really, who are in jail. Most famously, Marwan Barghouti, the the nationalist leader. He's not an Islamist like Hamas. Polling consistently shows he's the most popular Palestinian leader. And I, I think Israel needs to think about what its political strategy is here. You cannot destroy, you can't defeat Hamas militarily, because even if you depose it in Gaza, you will be laying the seeds for the next group of people who will be fighting Israel. We know that Hamas recruits from the families of people that Israel has killed. You need, it seems to me, to support Palestinian leaders who offer a vision of ethical resistance. Not that what we saw on October 7th, but ethical resistance and a path to Palestinian freedom that also means safety for Israeli Jews. Marwan Barghouti, although he was involved in armed attacks during the Second Intifada, has spoken from jail about the path of Nelson Mandela, about reconciliation, about justice, not vengeance. If Israel wanted legitimate Palestinian leaders that it could work with to build a horizon for Palestinian freedom, because only Palestinian freedom in the long run will ensure Israeli Jewish safety, then it could let him out and create the beginnings of a more legitimate Palestinian leadership rather than Mahmoud Abbas, who's viewed as a corrupt 
authoritarian subcontractor of Israel at this point. Uh, and Peter, I'm wondering if your response to the way that many pro-Palestinian voices are being silenced in the United States. Uh, uh, last week, for instance, Columbia University suspended students for justice in Palestine and Jewish voice for, uh, Voices for Peace as official student groups through the end of the term. Uh, and your sense of what this, the impact of, of these kinds of, of policies and the pressures from a lot of university donors uh, on, their, uh, on their universities to silence these voices. I think when historians look back at the periods of repression of free speech in the United States, from World War I to the Red Scare of the McCarthy era to the post 9-11 era, Tragically, we are writing another chapter now, and it's being done in part because of the cowardice um, of university administrators and, and, and others, people who were sworn to defend the principles of free speech and academic freedom um, because of, of pressure, as you say, very, very often from donors. You don't have to agree with everything that Students for Justice in Palestine says. I myself don't, but they have the right to make their voices heard. Yes, do some of the things they say are some of the things upsetting to some Jewish students? Yes, some of the things that the pro-Israel groups on campus say are upsetting to the, some of the Palestinian students. The point of a university is that people are able to express their views. And for goodness sakes, one of the things we've been hearing from people on the right for years and years in their opposition to cancel culture is that universities are supposed to make you uncomfortable. Physical safety is one thing. Intellectual discomfort is another. It is not the job of university presidents to protect students from hearing things that because they were raised in pro-Israel families, they find deeply upsetting. The, the point is to allow people to have these conversations. And it's really deeply, deeply disturbing to me that in these, these places that are supposed to be bastions of free speech and academic freedom, we're seeing this kind of crumbling. Yeah, and I'm wondering also, there was a report in the New York Times today, which uh, inexplicably, in my view, should have been on the front page, but was buried in the back, uh, about an a, a attack on the uh, Al-Shifa hospital on Friday uh, that initially the Israeli defense uh, uh, forces claimed was, again, errant missiles of Hamas. But the New York Times has been able to document that uh, from some of the uh, uh, some of the fragments of the of the missiles that they were actually anti-tank uh, uh, um, artillery uh, from the uh, Israeli anti-tank artillery. And uh, this really raises deep uh, questions about the credibility of prior statements of Israel about some of these uh, attacks. Uh, wondering your response. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a military expert. I would just say this. Israel is saying that, that Hamas is embedding itself in civilian areas and, and using Palestinian civilians as, quote-unquote, human shields. Um, there may be cases in which that is true, we, but, but we know that this is the way guerrilla armies fight, right? The Viet Cong, when they were fighting the United States in Vietnam, didn't just walk out into the fields and say, here we are. They embedded themselves in villages. This is the nature of fighting against a guerrilla movement, against an insurgency 
democracy. It doesn't give you carte blanche to then basically go and kill vast numbers of civilians. The underlying lesson is you can't defeat an insurgency unless you address the core political grievances. This is the fundamental flaw behind Israel's strategy. In Israel, it's so tragic to see this because it's been happening again and again for decades. Israel went into southern Lebanon in the early 1980s to depose the PLO, and they kicked the PLO out of Lebanon. And what happened? They ended up in an occupation that led to Hezbollah. Israel is not found laying the foundations here for anything that will lead to mutual coexistence and mutual freedom between the two societies. The, the civilians it kills are laying the groundwork for more and more destruction and death on both sides because Israeli leaders are not willing to face the fundamental fact, and American leaders are not forcing them to, that the issue, even deeper than Hamas, as Hamas, horrible as Hamas is, the issue is the lack of Palestinian freedom. Peter Beiner, you just wrote a piece um, in The New York Times, There's a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation, It Must Survive, where you talk about the ANC. If you can talk about apartheid, Palestine, the ANC, and the day after, as they say. The point I tried to make is that the African National Congress, although it did use armed resistance against apartheid, it tried hard to not go after civilians. And one of the reasons it was able to maintain this ethical line, which tragically Hamas brutally crossed on October 7th, was that it saw its strategy of ethical resistance was working. It saw that it was resonating around the world. By the late 80s, the, an anti-apartheid movement had grown that had led to sanctions, that had led to divestment. And this created a kind of virtuous cycle that made it easier for the ANC to resist in an ethical way. The point I wanted to make in the piece is, if we find what Hamas did on October 7th despicable, as I did, it is incumbent on us to support Palestinians who are fighting for their freedom in an ethical way. And when you shut that down, as the United States has done uh, again and again, you shut down Palestinian efforts at the UN, you shut down Palestinian efforts at the International Criminal Court, you criminalize boycott, divestment and sanction, even though these are nonviolent efforts in this language of human rights and international law, you are actually empowering forces like Hamas that will resist in these immoral ways. We have to create paths for Palestinians to fight for freedom ethically, and we've done the opposite. I, I'm wondering also, you uh, tweeted on Monday, quote, American Jewish institutions have assembled alibis for the horror Israel is inflicting on Gaza. They're not just intellectually flimsy. They aim to squelch our noblest emotions, solidarity with suffering people, outrage at the state that is killing them. Could you talk about the, the enormous battle that is occurring within the American Jewish community where groups like Jewish Voices for Peace are being arrested by the hundreds in cities across Across the country, uh, yet many of the major Jewish institutions continue to line up behind uh, Israel. Yeah, you know, it, it says in, in, the, in the Talmud that the imperative of human dignity is so great that it overrides all rabbinic commands. Um, and it's really, it's tragic to me to see that the institutional leaders of our Jewish community have forgotten that in this moment when it needs to be 
remembered most. And instead, what you have is a series of alibis that, that just are into, that just don't make any sense. For instance, the, the, the idea that Gaza, people in Gaza deserve this because they voted for Hamas in 2006. Well, most of the people, only 25% of the people in Gaza were even alive during that election. And if we set the precedent that you are, that you can be killed because you vote for the wrong political party, uh, I think that's going to have very, very bad consequences for, for many people all around, all around the world. There's a generational struggle above all that's happening among American Jews. The, the people over, the, the bulk of the people who were who are leading these protests, these Jewish people who are protesting in the name of a ceasefire are young. Um, and, and, and what gives me hope is there are people on both sides, Hamas and the Israeli government, who basically see this struggle as a zero-sum struggle of tribe versus tribe. And that logic is going to lead to greater and greater destruction and misery. What I think we're seeing among young American Jews is a different claim. It's that this is not a struggle of Jews against Palestinians. It's a struggle of Jews and Palestinians and people of conscience from all around the world around a series of basic principles. The principle is that there has to be safety and freedom and decent lives for Palestinians if there is ever going to be safety and, 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 de and decency uh, and dignity for Israeli Jews as well. That these two people are bound together in a garment of destiny, as Martin Luther King said. And I actually think that, that it's this multi-racial, multi-religious, multi-ethnic movement that in this incredibly dark time is the one thing I think that we can cling to as, a, as something, as a source of hope. Peter, we have less than a minute, but what is your assessment of what President Biden is doing and should be doing? President Biden keeps saying that he would like Benjamin Netanyahu to do something else. And Benjamin Netanyahu keeps doing what he's doing because th there is no stick attached to what President B B Biden is saying, right? Um, there are no consequences. Now, Ob now Netanyahu is saying that Israel is going to reoccupy Gaza. Biden knows that this is a nightmare for Israel and a nightmare for the United States. It will be a quagmire, an insurgency for as long as the, as the, as the eye can see. America has to use its considerable leverage to get the Israeli government to do something to show Palestinians that it has, that there is a way for them to fight for their freedom that, that Israel and the world will offer them. Otherwise, we're going to have round after round after round of this hideous killing on both sides. Peter Reinhart, we want to thank you for being with us, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, professor at CUNY Journalism School. We'll link to your recent New York Times op-ed headline, There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It Must Survive. This is Democracy Now! Coming up, we speak with Rabbi Alyssa Wise with the newly formed Rabbis for a Ceasefire. Back in 30 seconds. Sorrow in the Caspa by Ennio Morricone.
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. This week has been dubbed the Jews First Ceasefire Week of Action by groups including If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace. In Chicago, hundreds of Jews and allies blocked the entrance to the Israeli consulate Monday. Ceasefire means ending the genocide, the invasion, the siege. It means hostage release now. It means no more escalation to further war, violence, and death. And it means creating space for a true diplomatic solution that addresses the root causes of occupation and apartheid. Around the country, Jews calling for a ceasefire also held sit-ins in the offices of Congress members. In Washington, D.C., Monday, dozens of rabbis with Rabbis for Ceasefire were joined by spiritual leaders and hundreds of others for a morning prayer and reading of the Torah in front of the U.S. Capitol to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. After the special shaharit service, rabbis and supporters marched to congressional offices where they met with elected officials. This is Congressmember Cory Bush. We are rabbis. We are pastors. We are Congress members. We are surviving family members. We are human beings. And we are bound by our faith to demand a ceasefire now, to demand an end to the violence now, to demand that love and peace and justice and humanity reigns and is at the center of all of our work now, not tomorrow, not next week, not in a month, not in a year, now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. For more, we're joined by Rabbi Alyssa Wise, organizer with Rabbis for Ceasefire, former co-executive director of the organization Jewish Voice for Peace, where she was also the founding co-chair of JVP's Rabbinical Council. So we're seeing all of this opposition around the country. Can you describe what happened in Washington? We just saw Cori Bush, I think AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ilhan Omar, a number of other Congress members who were there for your prayer service. Talk about uh, the support you're getting. We're getting tremendous support from the signers of the Ceasefire Now resolution. And on Monday, when we brought our message to D.C., we were buoyed by um, the embrace of these members of Congress. But actually, the embrace went both ways. It was clear that our presence there in D.C. was a balm for their souls. They are being Run, run through the mud um, for their voice of humanity and their voice of justice. And likewise, we need support, too. We are rabbis for ceasefire. We are, as rabbis, responsible to serve the Jewish people's spiritual, cultural, communal health. And as part of that, our obligation as rabbis is to ensure that Jewish people are part of the most profound and sacred obligation in Jewish tradition, which is saving lives. And that is the root of our call for ceasefire. 
Uh, Rabbi, I'm wondering if you could talk about your experience and work within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement and how do you counter claims that critique of Israeli policies and of the occupation is inherently anti-Semitic? You know, there's been an effort over the past number of years to conflate um, critique of Israel with anti-Semitism. This is a deliberate strategy by those who seek to shield Israel from accountability. The truth is, Judaism is a beautiful, evolving religious civilization that has been part of the world for thousands of years. Zionism and the Jewish state has a far shorter history. Zionism is just over 125 years old and the state just 75 years. There is nothing inherent in critiquing the Israeli state um, as anti-Semitic. The thing that we have to remember is that states must be held accountable when they violate human rights. And the cynical strategy by legacy Jewish institutions to shield Israel from accountability through claims that Israel is a Jew or Israel is the Jew of the world. Israel is not a Jewish person. Israel is a state. God forbid we should not be able to cry out when states are committing horrific genocidal violence in the name of Jewish people. When American Jews around the world, rabbis and um, our congregants alike, are saying not in our name, they are enacting their obligation as Jewish people to protect life, to say every life is sacred and to make no distinction between Israeli life and Palestinian life. As Representative Rashida Tlaib said, the cries of Israeli and Palestinian children don't sound different to her. They don't sound different to us. When you seek to stop critique of a nation state that is committing such horrific genocidal violence with claims of anti-Semitism, you are lending credence to that violence. You know, yesterday in D.C. at the pro-Israel rally, I was horrified to see that the most powerful anti-Semite in our country was given a headline spot. Shame on them. Shame on them for allowing Pastor John Hagee, who believes that Israel needs to be supported by Christian Zionists in order to hasten the second coming of the Messiah, at which point Jews must either either convert en masse or burn. There is nothing more anti-Semitic than that. And shame on them for putting Jewish lives at risk, for playing Russian roulette with Jewish safety to protect Israel and to shield them from accountability for this horrific violence. When the crowd started shouting, no ceasefire, I was humiliated. I was horrified. I was brought up in a tradition that teaches life is sacred. I prayed on Monday with my fellow rabbis in front of the Capitol that we are guided by an ahava rabbah, an unending love. And that unending love is not finite. It extends to all people, and it must I think about my children, my Jewish children that I'm raising, and the peril that these Jewish organizations are putting them in when they cynically seek to conflate critique of Israel and anti-Semitism and create a stage for those who joyfully 
claim that Jews must convert or be burned at the coming of the second Messiah, and that is their reason why they support Israel. Shame on them. We were going to bring in a second guest to join you, uh, Rabbi Alyssa Wise, and to talk more about the Christian Zionist pastor, John Hagee, who once said God had, quote, sent Hitler to help Jews reach the promised land. This is part of what he said at Tuesday's march in Washington. Israel is the shining city on the hill. Israel says, God says of Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem is the shoreline of eternity. Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel today and forever. Other high-profile speakers at Tuesday's protest included Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the new House Speaker Mike Johnson, who has ties to the Christian Zionist movement. As Prime Minister Netanyahu says so well, this is a fight between good and evil, between light and darkness, between civilization and barbarism. For more, we're, in addition to Rabbi Alyssa Wise, joined by Sarah Posner, who's long covered Christian Zionists and is the author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. She's an MSNBC columnist. Her recent piece titled The Dispiriting Truth About Why Many Evangelical Christians Support Israel. Um, if you can talk about that, Sarah, and also specifically talk about John Hagee addressing these tens of thousands of people, and then the House Speaker. So, Hagee has long uh, walked this line between seeming like he, or, or pretending to a Jewish audience, like he's really only interested in policy and what's happening in the present. He walks this line, but then when he goes into a church— uh, to preach about his theology, what he says is really quite different. He didn't say on Tuesday um, that he expects, according to big biblical prophecy, that one day uh, Jesus will return and fight a very bloody battle, which, as the rabbi said, will result in Jews either converting or dying, and Muslims too, by the way. Um, he, he didn't say that. He didn't say that he believes that at the end of that, Jesus will rule the world uh, from his throne on the Temple Mount. Uh, he didn't say that everything is playing out according to biblical prophecy. And so he has, he has basically hoodwinked many Jews into believing that he actually supports Israel. But what he really supports is his claim that Bible, Israel is just a pawn, really, in this Bible prophecy, which at the end of which, uh, at the end of which, uh, Jesus will rule the world as basically a, a theocrat. Well, Sarah Posner, you, you've uh, noted that, quote, at the heart of Christian Zionism is not a love for Israel, but rather Christian nationalism. But what does Israel and its staunchest defenders get from this alliance? Well, what what the what Israelis and American Jews who embrace Hagee's support get is a huge movement, much larger than 
uh, the um, number of Jewish Americans um, that has the ear of the Republican Party that is enmeshed in the Republican Party. Uh, and so it's much more than Kufi has juice. Kufi is uh, Hagee's organization, Christians United for Israel, has juice on Capitol Hill or in the White House when a Republican is in the White House. It is more than that. It is so common among evangelicals, even if they're not members of Kufi, to share these ideas about Israel and Bible prophecy and the return of Jesus. Um, and so they, what they do is they bring this huge constituency to Republicans, many of whom, like Speaker Johnson, believe all of this themselves. Um, and so they have morphed together this idea of supporting Israel with being a good American Christian. They believe that God has commanded America as a country, not just them as Americans, to quote-unquote support Israel. But in their mind, supporting Israel involves in supporting the occupation, supporting the Israeli military, no matter what it does. It doesn't mean supporting Israel from the standpoint that someday, perhaps, Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace. That's not part of the equation. I wanted to play another clip. Um, in 2008, John McCain rejected um, Pastor John Hagee's endorsements after the pastor said uh, God sent Hitler to help Jews get to Israel. This is a clip of Hagee's sermon. Then God sent a hunter. A hunter is someone who comes with a gun and he forces you. Hitler was a hunter. Sarah Posner. So this is part of Hagee's overriding theology, that all of history can be sandwiched into his view of what the Bible prophecy is about the return of Jesus. So basically what he's saying is, what he's saying there, and what he's essentially saying in other much more recent statements than that, um, is that God has punished or disciplined the Jews throughout history as part of his plan to get them to return to Israel, which is a precondition of Jesus's return. So he's not trying to make it happen on a faster timetable. He will say that it's all going to happen on God's timing. But what he's saying is, any world event that's occurring now or has occurred in the past is part of what has been prophesied in the Bible, and God is directing traffic here. And one of God's intentions is to get Jews to return to Israel because that is a precondition of Jesus's return. He says that he claims this is all laid out in the Bible, and this is just Bible prophecy playing out. I'd like to bring Rabbi Lisa Wise back into the conversation. Your response to this whole issue of the extreme Christian right in the United States uh, uh, lining up uh, in support of Israel for its own uh, religious purposes. Yeah, as as Sarah mentioned, you know, Kufi boasts more members, uh, 10 million, they claim, which is surpasses the total number of Jews in the United States. So one thing that's really critical is that white Christians need to be mobilizing just as American Jews are. American Jews are getting arrested by the hundreds, as you mentioned. Christians who oppose this vision that Christianity, uh, that Hagee and is— um, 
is proliferating need to likewise be stepping out. They, the influence of Christian Zionism on U.S. foreign policy is way understated. It gets uh, the the Jewish pro-Israel uh, lobby is dwarfed in comparison to what um, the Christian Zionist lobby is doing to promote U.S. foreign policy. But I think the most important piece here is that all of this is making Jews less safe in the world. Israel's actions in Gaza, but also not just now, but for generations, when Palestinians are not free, Jews are less safe in the world. And that is the crux of the matter. There is no way for Jewish safety to be found when others are being oppressed. That's just the simple truth of it. And organizations that seek to uh, distract from those of us that are trying to realize freedom, democracy, equal rights. It's simple. It's equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. Those people claim that we are anti-Semitic when, in fact, their actions at aiding and abetting genocidal violence in Gaza now, but apartheid and occupation for generations, that is what is making Jews less safe in the world. I wanted to put this question to Sarah Posner, author of Unholy. Um, you've written about Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker's Christian nationalist track record. Can you talk about his views and uh, when you first encountered him in 2007, working on a story about the Alliance Defense Fund's ambitions to gut the separation of church and state? Explain what that all is. So uh, the organization is now called Alliance Defending Freedom. It's a major Christian right legal organization that sees itself as a Christian counterweight to the ACLU. Um, it is behind many Supreme Court cases, including Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop involving the, the anti-gay uh, baker. Um, and Johnson was working for them at the time that I was uh, that I interviewed him. And he laid out for me uh, the organization's ambition to eviscerate the ch separation of church and state at the Supreme Court and to um, create a create a legal framework in which conservative Christians could object to things like LGBTQ rights in the name of religious freedom. Everything he said to me back in 2007, ADF has pretty much done and accomplished or is well on its way to accomplishing um, undermining church-state separation, elevating the religious freedom of uh, conservative Christians who oppose LGBTQ and reproductive rights. Um, and uh, that is the, the framework and the ideology that he brings to Congress. Um, he also believes that God created civil government and that the government should be run from what uh, Christian nationalists would call a biblical worldview. So his, um, his entire ideology and framework and way of looking at the world and way of looking at government in particular is very classic to the T to the of uh, the Christian right of, you know, Christian nationalists, whatever you want to call it, believing that their biblical worldview is what should dictate law and policy in the United States. Wondering, is that this uh, phenomena of the Christian Zionism uh, largely 
centered in the United States, or have you seen similar uh, a similar movements uh, in uh, other advanced industrial countries, especially in, in Europe as well? Sure. It's worldwide. There are organizations that bring together Christian Zionists from different countries um, that in particular bring together Christian Zionist legislators from different countries. So it's definitely a worldwide movement. But Hagee is probably the world's foremost and most well-known Christian Zionist, um, in part because of his decades-long preaching on the question, but also because of his founding of Kufi in 2006. Sarah Posner, we want to thank you for being with us, author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. And thank you to Rabbi Alyssa Wise of Rabbis for Ceasefire and former co-executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!